Welcome into the Think Deeper podcast presented by Focus Press. I'm one of your hosts, Jack Wilkie, joined once again by Joe Wilkie, Will Harob. Uh, we are into August now, fellas. We kind of August always feels like the downside of the year. Like you, you're, you've crested the hill, and now you just kind of start rolling toward Christmas, back to school, and all that. So, what's going on for you guys? I love this time of the year, honestly. Like, first off, the year has flown by. I think back to us doing this more consistently. Actually, Dad asked me last night, how many of these things do you think you've done? I was like, I've done a few. And then you think, and it's like, well, we've done like 30. Seriously, 25, 30 episodes, which is so fellas, you know, proud of you guys. Um, Proud of us for sticking it through because when we started in January, what's going to happen? It beats Um, my, you know, I was doing Think Deeper over the years before you guys. And I think the longest streak I ever got was five episodes. So we're 20, 25 (laughs) episodes clear of that. So that's pretty good. There you go. There you go. Not bad. Anyway, the year has flown by, but I always love this time of year because, you know, I'm sure all the kids are like, no, going back to school, but you're about to get into the most beautiful time of the year, in my opinion, with fall. Um, Jack with pumpkin, you love pumpkin stuff. Uh, anybody who knows oh, you. Oh, of course. Of course. Um, but yeah, getting ready for some really cool Thanksgiving is such a great holiday. Obviously Christmas. So I'm excited for this and for all the things we got coming up for focus. I'm really excited for that. So yeah, I'm, I'm pumped. Will, how about you? I got to be honest, I am not a big fan of this time of year, mainly August, Uh, getting into September. um, I'm a big sports guy, and this is the driest sports spell of the year. There's no basketball. There's no football. um, What, you're not a giant baseball guy? Right, right. There's baseball. So basically still no sports, Um, (laughs) (laughs) no relevant sports. That is no, um, you know, ever since I have been done with school. Uh, this just August has just kind of felt like a dead month. I don't know. You know, obviously when I was in school, it was all right time to go back to school now, not so much, but, um, I'm with you. I like fall. I love getting closer and closer to the holidays, but the fun time of year for me will start when, when football season starts coming up here soon. That's really true because August is also like the hottest month for a lot of places, but it feels like the summer's done. So you're dealing with the heat, but you're not really able to do much with it. Right. Exactly. Nobody's going on vacation at this point or anything. Yeah. The vacations are done. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. But we have like a bazillion birthdays in our family. So August is just the birthday month. And then we actually hit the ground running come September. So a lot of celebrations going on in August. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Exactly. Jack, how about you? You know, trying to get out of Texas, number one, but we just had the second hottest July on record and August oh. are always hotter than July here. And Ooh. so, uh, yeah, pray for us here. Oh, my goodness. It's so bad. But, uh, you know, as Joe said, like 90 percent of the people with the last name Wilkie were born in August. So. We're just going to party and eat cake all month long. I, I mean, literally in the first four days of the month, we've got, what, five or no, six birthdays five in birth- the family? Six? Something I like that. Five. Five, yeah. five birthdays in the family, yeah. And so, now, uh, yeah, Jack, to be clear, do you eat cake? Because I know you're you're counting calories. Joe just eats anything he'd like, but <laughs> it's, it's got to be hard. Not the way you speak. Um, Allison and I, my wife and I, actually have back-to-back birthdays uh, in the middle of the month, and so... I'm going to have to let loose for a day there or two. Uh, ah, you know, cheat day. Like, yeah, you exactly. So uh, other, otherwise, it's going to be a rough month on that front. I'm glad you added or two because you're like, I'm going to let loose for a day. And Allison's eating like carrot sticks on her birthday. Like, well, <laughs> this is not cake right. day yet. That's right. It's my <laughs> birthday. Got one day. We're going to feast yeah, on that's her right. birthday. Sorry. Yeah, no. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So uh, hope everyone else's August is going well. Again, condolences to all the kids. Uh, hearing those words back to school always is still 
I've been out of school for over a decade and it still sends shivers down my spine. So good luck with that. And, uh, yeah, just a, a good time of year and a good time for, for projects here at Focus. And so I, one other thing before we get into the episode, I want to remind you guys about Think Fast. It's our, our short form episodes, 15 to 20 minutes. Actually, we're trying to cut those down to 10 to 15 um, we put them on YouTube. We've been putting them on the podcast feed. We decided not to do that. You got to go to YouTube to get those. Um, just focus press on YouTube. This week we're going to do one on Christians and conspiracy theories. That's going to be a really interesting one. Uh, that that one's going to uh, cover a lot of hot topics over the last couple of years and, and kind of see where we stand. So check that out on YouTube. Um, if there's you know how much nothing fun? else. Oh, go ahead. You know how much fun it would be if we didn't record it and then people are like, is this a conspiracy <laughs> Gotcha. Brilliant. We'll come, yeah. come next week. <laughs> there no, you go. Um, I guess if there's nothing else, Will, why don't you take us into this week's topic? So the topic that we want to get into to, with today's episode is uh, ties back into what we discussed last week. Uh, if you didn't get a chance to listen, we kind of started what we're calling a, a series. A lot of it centers around uh, Jack's book, Church Reset. Uh, if you haven't uh, read that, highly recommend it. But But really what we started discussing last week is just kind of the idea of where have we gone wrong when it comes to the way that the church is currently set up in America, you know, various congregations? And we talked about the the consumeristic side of Christianity, right, and how a lot of churches, I say a lot, it's really most, I would say 90% of, of congregations in the, in the United States are set up in a very consumeristic fashion where, you know, the members are coming in, hey, what can this church do for me, right? What can these program, what, what programs can they offer me? What do they have for my kids? And it's very consumer-based, and so that's what we started out talking about last week, with today, we want to kind of continue that thought, but but take it in, into a different area, and that is considering maybe have we misunderstood the Great Commission. Now, on, on first, when you first hear that, you're like, no, I'm I'm pretty sure most people have the Great Commission down, right? That's one of the passages we all have memorized: Matthew 28, 19, and 20, and then obviously Mark 16, 15, and 16. Very familiar uh, for the average Christian, but. It's our position, that's what we're going to get into with this episode, that we've kind of misunderstood that a little bit. Uh, that just as with the way current congregations are set up to be very consumer-minded, that we think that that is something that is anti-biblical, uh, there have been some things that, that we have gotten mixed up on with the Great Commission, specifically when we're talking about discipleship, uh, the way that we kind of, I don't want to say overemphasize just the, the five steps of salvation and, and baptism, but the fact that we don't really understand what it means to disciple. And so that's what we want to get into with today's episode. And I guess the first question that you really have to ask and you have to kind of ask yourself is, what is the point of Christianity? You know, there's a lot of, of, of false gospels out there, you might say, where, you know, the health and wealth gospel, the prosperity gospel that, hey, if you're going to be a Christian, it means that, you know, your life's going to go great. It means that you're going to be prosperous, the, you know, the abundant life. Uh, doctrine type of thing. You've got other people that say, hey, the point of Christianity is to enact social justice, to, to, to push that across society. But if you really boil it down, what is Christianity? What's the point of it? And I'm going to, that's the question I'm going to start by asking you two guys. Joe, we'll start with you. What's the point of it? Because, you know, it, it'd be interesting if you took a, an adult class on a Sunday morning of, of adults and you asked them, hey, hey, what's the point of Christianity? You'd probably would get a lot of different answers, right? I mean, you'd probably get a lot of people that would say, you know, maybe it's just to, to be a moral person, to be a good person. Maybe it's to, you know, uh, love others, that kind of thing. So what's the point of Christianity? That's where we're going to start, Joe. What would you say to that? Yeah, yeah great, great question. Um, this is the question of all questions, right? And I think as you already hit on, easy to look at what it's not. A lot of people make it knowledge. It's just about, you know, knowing a lot of things, knowing a lot of facts. A lot of people, this is a common one you didn't hit on, 
they make it about heaven, getting to heaven. And, and how many of us hear that, you know, what's our, what's the purpose of, of Christianity or what's our number one goal? It's to get to heaven, take as many people uh, there with us, which is true. I mean, that's a good goal, but not even that is the purpose of Christianity. And I think it boils down to, to one simple thing, which is Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness. Um, there's a number of scriptures, Jack, I'm going to, I'll tee you off on those. Um, there's a number of scriptures that go along with Christ-likeness being the number one goal, but there's a reason for that. Everything else is focused on on other things other than God. It's focused on us getting to heaven, and it's focused on our morality. It's focused on our social justice. It's focused on our self-esteem. It's focused on our health and wealth, our knowledge, whatever it may be. There's a very me-centered aspect to most people's Christianity. And that always breaks down because we can't be at the center of anything without it breaking down. That's We're human. Christ has to be at the center. There's a reason why. So Jack, get into that, of, of this Christ-likeness idea, because once again, you've written the book, The Church Reset, and you explore this concept heavily. What do you mean by Christ-likeness being the point of Christianity? It's something that changes the, the angle you're coming at it. Um, as we said, some of those are very easy to dismiss. The health and wealth, man, if you follow Jesus, everything's going to go well, and he's got a, a a purpose for you to just thrive and succeed. And it's like, well, he does, but not in the way that Stephen Furtick and Joel Osteen and, and all those big-name TV preachers mean. So that that's very easy to dismiss as the number one purpose of Christianity. When other things like Bible knowledge that are good or being a more moral person, these are good goals, but when a good goal, a secondary goal, becomes the main goal— your your shift your your the shift in focus the trajectory changes a little bit and it's the same thing with with heaven and i think that goes back to the revivalism history we have in in america the tent meetings the decisionism the you've talked before joe about the mourners bench which we turn into the invitation come forward let's emotionally prick your heart and you'll come forward and get baptized and you know because you're going to go to hell and there's value in that of of hey those who are against God do go to hell. Those who uh, are, are separate from Christ. And, and so we need to preach that. But that starts building the consumer Christianity because it makes it about you. You are the center of that message. Whereas the, the gospel message, the Bible's message, is a, a transformation of none of us were good enough. Jesus stood in our place so that we could become like him. You know, Second uh, Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Almost all of these other lesser Gospels end up producing a, let's make you a better version of yourself. That's not good enough. You're not just a better version of yourself. You are a God-infused version of yourself, a Jesus-following version of yourself. And so the difference is, you know, I, I think when I've said this before, people seem to maybe think I'm nitpicking, maybe, you know, uh, splitting hairs or, or whatever you want to call it. But if you think about a church family that thinks... You know, it's about knowing the Bible as well as we can. And you've got a bunch of people who know the Bible perfectly well. We all would know people who know the Bible and don't live it. So if, if your church family is made up of people who all know the Bible really well, that doesn't mean you get somewhere. If your church family is, is people who are trying to live more moral lives, that's great. But that doesn't mean you've got the mission, you've got the evangelism, you've got all those other things. If your church family is all people who are trying to go to heaven, what are you going to end up with? You're going to end up with what we have, which is a lot of box-checking Christians. Kind of the rich young ruler question, what do I got to do? Just let me know what I got to do because I want to go to heaven, so what do I got to do to get there? But if you have a family where every single one is like, I want to become more like Jesus, and my goal today, this week, right now, is how can I be more like Jesus, and they're really growing in that direction, 
and and you had a family full of people like that, you see the difference in that. And so it's something the New Testament emphasizes over and over and over. Uh, I mean, there are a bunch of verses on that we're going to get to here in a minute that tell us, I mean, this just straight up, Paul multiple times says, this is the purpose of my ministry, is to make you guys be like Christ. Um, and, and so one other thing I want to say on this is we talk about justification, which is having our sins forgiven, right? Uh, sanctification, which is growing out of our sins, getting the, the sin out of our hearts more and more as we grow in our walk with Christ. But then, and that's part of becoming like Christ is sanctification, right? Becoming more like him and less like us. But then the final one we don't talk about much is glorification. First John 3 says we'll be like him when we see him. Well, like it'll be fully, the, the sin, that fleshly part of us will be fully purged from us. And so that's the goal we're running towards is glorification, being exactly like Christ for all of eternity. And so let's start working on that now, which is the sanctification. I think, a and big, that's the, go ahead, Joe, sorry. Will. I think a big part of, of the, of the issue that you see young people, older people alike, and when this, with this idea of Christ-likeness is they're constantly comparing themselves to other people. You know, it's almost as if they think that the image of Christ or being conformed to, to his image is too high of a goal to attain. And so because it's too, you know, it's, it's the idea that, man, if the goal's too high, I'm just not even going to try. You know, and so they'll, aim, they'll, they'll compare themselves to maybe it's other people in their congregation. Maybe, you know, worse comes to worse, they compare themselves to the world and they think, well, I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as I don't do the things that that individual does. I don't do those things. So I guess, you know, I'm doing pretty good, right? And so it, it, it ties into this idea of box checking, but what it's mostly done is it's gotten to, to where folks that are in the church, they don't compare themselves to Christ. They're not asking themselves. And that's what we talked about with all the things that we brought up. Uh, on the past think fast, on past think deepers, modest dress, um, TikTok, whether or not to have that, whether or not we should boycott Disney, you know, all these things that, that people say, well, maybe that's more on the opinion side of things. People have forgotten how to ask what's more Christ-like, right? What would make me, what would conform more to the image of Christ? What they do is they've constantly, again, compare themselves to other people, compare themselves to anything but Christ. And so I think that's why you have a lot of this disconnect of, well, I don't know what we should do. Well, how about we start with the question of what's going to make us more Christ-like with the way that we dress, the way that we talk, the things that we watch, that sort of thing. That, that's, to me, one of the biggest issues behind all this. There's another side of the comparison thing of not just looking around saying, oh, I'm better than, you know, like I'm, I'm better than the world, I'm different than them. We'll also, you'll hear people look at very holy Christians and be like, I could never be like that guy. You know, or you'll hear, I, I, you'll even hear somebody say, that guy's a saint. <laughs> like, we're all saints. Right. And we're supposed to be, you know, right. being sanctified, becoming more saintly. And so, you know, you look at them and go, well, I could never do that. And it's like, it's not on your own strength. It's it's God helping the, that person submitting themselves to God and God, you know, dragging them and, and pushing them and, and leading them more towards Christ likeness. And so all of us can do that. Anybody who has the heart to do that, you know, who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. And so if you make it your desire to be like Christ, but if you got this comparison thing of like, well, I'll never be good as brother or sister so-and-so, but at least I'm not as bad as the world. And so I'm, I'm probably in a good place. I'm probably going to heaven. I'm happy with that. God calls us to, to greater, excel still more, the New Testament tells us. And so w when you have that paradigm shift of, I'm not just here to clear the bar and get into heaven. You know, you'll hear people say like, "Man, I'm just gonna slide into heaven, or I'm gonna I'm gonna crawl into heaven if I can just barely get over that line." Like, this is not this is not the spirit God has given us to barely get there. He's he's constantly developing and training and and building us toward something more towards Christ likeness. 
I preached on this yesterday, this idea of diet Christianity. And we treat Christianity like a diet a lot of the time. We're just cutting out the bad, you know, trying to trying to get healthy type of thing. And we do so by pointing to heaven, which is delayed, um, kind of the delayed results. Well, in six months, I'm going to be there. Well, that doesn't mean a whole lot when I want the donut today, right? That And, and we do the same thing of like, well, I probably think about a 20-year-old. Lord willing, he's got another 60, 70 years on this planet. And when we make everything about heaven, we're delaying that. And he's like, well, but what, what difference does it make today? It's kind of the idea of procrastination, I, right? That's the idea right, that you don't right. have to do anything about it today. Yeah. We also, you know, I was also talking about cheat meals and how a lot of times we view sin, and this is the sanctification process, but we view sin as like what I really want to do, but I know I shouldn't because it's not healthy. Right, it's kind of a cheat meal, and then we we go out on it. Um, <clears throat> we'll we'll partake a little bit, and we'll feel horrible because we know we're not supposed to, but whatever it may be. Um, but just this idea of how do we view Christianity? Do we view it in a way that is I want to know Christ more than anything? And and part of that is like why do people go on diets? Well, they want to look good. They want they want to they do it before summer so they can look good at the beach, or they they do it before their ten year high school reunion so they can look good to all their buddies. We treat Christianity the same way, and that's really kind of what sparked the thought, Will, of what you're saying. Um, we treat it the same way of like our Christianity is just about looking good to others, and it's not about actually being transformed, being good, and and Christ is our goodness, right? And so when we make it a centralized focus on us, who gets the glorification? We do. We do. What is this all about? What is Philippians 2? Uh, let's see. So it starts in verse 5 of have this attitude in yourselves, and then it goes through, I think, at the end of verse 11, why did Christ do everything? It was all to the glory of God. That's that's the entire point. So our job is to glorify God here in everything that we do, and we ourselves will be glorified at the end, is, is the point Jack's getting at of 1 John 3. So Christianity is so much deeper and so much better than most people make it, but we really miss out on this point, which I think, and the reason why we started with this is this ties in very much to this, to the Great Commission, how we make disciples, and and how we go out and do those things. So before we get there, though, because I can see Jack, you're, you're before we get there, I want to look at a few scriptures, and I'm going to kick us off with Romans eight twenty nine. But fellas, if you want to get the other ones, um, here's just a few scriptures to to let this sink in about what we're talking about. The Christianity is not just pursuing heaven. It's not just being a better person. It's something completely different. Check out Romans 8.29 for those who are listening. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Conformed to the image of Christ. That's the goal of Christianity. Um, we got another one. Well, that, that's all. just right on the heels of a well-known verse 8.28 of God makes all things work together for good to those who love him. And... So, but then he defines uh, those who are called according to his purpose is how that verse ends. And then he tells us what his purpose is, is so that you would be conformed to the image of Christ. And so when he says all things work together for good, it's in the context of that, of everything that happens to you, God can work towards this end of making you more like Christ. And so... And to your glorification point, check out verse 30. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Right. So the conforming to the image of Christ is right in the middle of all that. And we, we kind of know if God is for us, who is against us. We know all things work together for good, but that's the purpose in the middle of it. It's not us. It's not our, our life here. It's this bigger purpose of us being made into Christ likeness. Right. 
Uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 is a verse that uh, a lot of people are familiar with just uh, because it's a song. Uh, I've been crucified with Christ. Uh, verse 20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And that's the that's the point of the verse, is that we're no longer living for ourselves, is that we are living for Christ, and Christ, not only that, but he lives in us. And it says, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's It's literally living a life in which Christ is not just the center of it, but that Christ is literally living through you. Later on in the book, uh, Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, he said, Paul says, My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. That's the point, right? That, that's, that's what he's getting at, and that's the, the, the goal, or what should be rather the goal of every single New Testament Christian, is that not only are we not living for ourselves, but that Christ is, is, is truly living in us and that we're reflecting him through our actions we miss that a lot of times. Jack, I think you got a few more that you want to get into there. Yeah, so you brought up Ephesians 4 last week when we talked about consumer Christianity. Uh, Ephesians 4.13, it, it talks about that he, he gave these leaders of the church to equip the saints to the building up the body of Christ, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So the, the purpose, what, what the church is supposed to do, God established elders, preachers, teachers, those that, that lead us to equip us so that we can grow into this maturity and completeness in Christ. Uh, and, and so he comes back around in verse 15 into Christ who is the head and, and all of us, whatever joint supplies, we're all supposed to be contributing to this body and how we do that is growing to maturity in Christ. Uh, Colossians 1 has a similar idea where he says uh, in verse 27, Christ in you, the hope of glory, Verse 28, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. There's this mature end, and you've got Jesus as this perfect picture, Christ-likeness, that we all are supposed to be growing to maturity, to completeness. And as as a couple of those verses have said, in verse 29, follow, Paul, Paul follows this up, For this purpose also I labor. This is what I'm here for. As he said in Galatians 4, that one Will just read, Christ in you for which I labor. This is, Paul looked at it. He's like, this is my job, is to see Jesus start coming through you. Just coming out your pores as who you are as a human being is Jesus on the inside, showing, working his way out in, in your actions and your words and, and who you are. And that's what we're getting at with this episode, is that there are... Far too many Christians who that is not the case. Jesus is not pouring out of them, right? Jesus is not pouring out of their decisions, out of their the way that they live their lives. You know, we, we bash on young people and their worldliness quite a bit. It's the same thing with 40 and 50-year-olds who are truly not having Christ, again, like Jack just described, pour out of them with their decisions because, because again, we've forgotten, or at least we neglect the idea that uh, in that Ephesians 4 passage, Christ is the standard we're supposed to be measuring up to. Right, the, the stature of the fullness of Christ, that's what we're supposed to be striving to attain. And so many people, again, because of the consumerism or whatever it is, we've grown lackadaisical. We've grown apathetic to the idea that, no, we are striving for Christ. We are trying to, to measure. And again, well, we'll never live up to the standard. We are supposed to, to get to the point where Christ is living through us. To connect C.S. Lewis has a, well, before we get to the Lewis quote, which is a great quote, uh, and it really sums up all these verses we just read, but to connect this to our consumerism episode last week, we talked about the customer is always right, right, and numbers, and we just want as many people, and the way you get as many people as possible is lowering the bar as low as you can. Right. And basically, like, we're not going to require anything of you, we're not going to expect anything of you, we'll do everything for you, just come, and, and unfortunately, a lot of people are looking for that. A lot of people take advantage of that. A lot of others just kind of get caught up in the middle where they just don't know any better. 
and and yet this is the bar that we're supposed to set. And when you set this, you look at this and go, like Jesus, that's really hard. Wow, that's that I, I can't do that. Right. It's like exactly. You can't do that. This is dependence on him. This is faith. This is, you know, trusting in him. This is the spirit. This is all that, that God has set before us. But and it, we, we can choose one or the other. We can choose a lower the bar to get the numbers up. Or we talked about this in John 6, Jesus driving the people away. And the only ones that were left that said, you have the words of eternal life. We have to be here because you are where it's at. And that's this call to Christ likeness. And so as we start painting this vision of as a church, we need every member to be as Christ-like as possible if we're going to succeed. That's the maturity we're to come to, that everyone can, every joint supplies something. This is a tall task. It's hard work, and I think that's why we shy away from it sometimes. It's just easier to lower the bar and get the numbers up. But think about the diversity of everything, all of the reasons people pursue Christ that we've talked about. The health and wealth, the self-esteem, the social justice, the morality, the knowledge, the even heaven— when you're going to church every Sunday, you've got people, yes, we're all running toward the same general direction, but I think we're seeing a lot of churches that aren't unified on a goal. And when we're, as we're about to get into the Great Commission, that's the goal, is to decide, to make disciples. And if the disciple doesn't know why he's a disciple, doesn't know why he's a Christian, other than, hey, maybe it's to get to heaven or to be a good person or whatever it may be, we're not really running on the same track. Right. And, and so what would you see in churches if that were the case exactly what we're seeing people who sometimes show up we can't really get them to show up all the time we're really trying to get them in by by adding a coffee bar or whatever it may be consumerism christianity so if we all recognize this is the singular goal of becoming christ-like we would ask a lot of different questions and our churches would look very different i think well it's the idea that jack's has gotten that repeatedly, and that is this idea of creating an us, you know, that we're supposed to be this group of people that are banded together striving for the same thing. We don't have congregations that look like that these days. We've got a lot of people who are living their lives in any way that they want to, you know, partaking in activities, doing whatever they want to. And like you said, Joe, the, the, the fruits of it, what we see from that is people that kind of haphazard with attendance. They're certainly not going to do any evangelism. They're certainly not going to sacrifice anything. They're not going to serve. They're just going to to show up and you know every now and then maybe, in the, hey, what can the church do for me? That's what we see, but that's the symptom of it, or that, that's the fruit of it, I should say. That's the reason we have all this is because we don't have, in many congregations, I don't want to say all of them, but in many congregations we don't have groups of people banded together that are striving for Christ together. Because if they do or if they were, their lives would look very similar, right? And you look at your average congregation today in the Bible Belt, doesn't matter where, you got a bunch of people living their own lives, don't really look the same, doing their own thing. That's not the picture what we see in Acts 2, Acts 4, anywhere really in the New Testament. And C.S. Lewis has a great quote um, to, as, as Jack mentioned, kind of sums all this up. Church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christs. If they are not doing that, all the cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. God became man for no other purpose. The church exists for nothing else but to draw men into Christ. That is so good, and that's exactly what we're hitting at here, is the church has a singular mission, a singular goal, and that's we've, we've lost that. And that transitions us right into this next point of the Great Commission. This is the church's central mission, um, the Great Commission. What are we to do as a, as a church? And so to kick us off here, I think the first thing, I'll tell you what it's not. It's not just a call to evangelize, okay? That's what a lot of people will, will take it as. This is Matthew, for those following along, Matthew 28, 19, 19 and 20, last verses, uh, last two verses, or really three, I guess, 18 through 20, 
um, in the book of Matthew. It is, it's, it's such a beautiful culmination of everything, right? You get through 28 chapters of reading all about this man, Jesus. It's, it's, it's amazing. You're seeing miracles. You're seeing all his teachings. You're realizing this man is the son of God, right? All the way throughout. And about his kingdom too. He starts off in chapter four, preaching the good news of the kingdom. And teaching us father. Father's another key word there, right? Teaching us who our father is and how we can draw near to him. So he dies, he's resurrected, and this is his last words recorded in the book of Matthew. That yes, we have the other gospels, we have Acts, we know kind of what comes next, and and, and even in Acts there's a mini great commission almost in 1 verse 8. Um, But just consider for a moment that if you were just reading through Matthew, and this is the book that you had, this is the last words of Christ. And what does he have to say here, right? So we take it and we say, well, it's just to evangelize. Go out there and evangelize. And I suppose for those that are listening, I'll pull this up real fast. Um, I shouldn't take it for granted. I suppose that everybody knows uh, the Great Commission. But here's what it is. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Joe, I think the point that you're getting at here with the, the, well, it's, you know, we just need to evangelize is people read that and they think, we just need to go out and knock doors, right? We just need to go get people, go get people baptized. But elaborate a little bit more on that. I just wanted to clarify there. Well, I'm going to steal this because uh, as uh, I've got a a line in the book that is kind of stepping on my own toes is for the longest time, I read this as, as it's commonly read as a call to evangelize. And I'm not very good at evangelizing, so I don't do this. And But then when you read the Great Commission and you do some proper exegesis here, it's not just about evangelism. And I know that this is going to be like something some people have never heard. I'm, I promise you, follow us with this. It's about evangelism. Evangelism is baked into the Great Commission as a big part of it. It's not a verse strictly about evangelism. Because when we talk about, okay, in fact, I just heard something the other day where somebody was speaking of like, you know, people say that the mission of the church is is the Great Commission. Well, no, that's part of it because we got to evangelize, but it's all these... Uh, no, no, the mission of the church is the Great Commission, part of which is evangelism. You have to learn how to read what happens here. Uh, shout out Denny Petrillo. We had him uh, on a Bible study episode a couple months ago. Uh, Dr. Denny Petrillo, I should say, from Bear Valley Bible Institute. Um, he taught this... Uh, I, I must have taken the class in 2006, 2007, long time ago. I'm an, I'm an old guy, as we always joke. And then it took me, like... I don't know, 12 years before it hit me right between the eyes. Oh, that's how it works. So let's let's look at how this verse is broken down. In the Greek, you have a command and then the participles. And as I've explained it before, I don't know if I've done it on the podcast. If, if you're a parent and you leave home and you tell your kids, hey, clean the kitchen, sweeping the floors, putting the dishes away, wiping the counters. And you come home and they put the dishes away and swept the floors, but they didn't wipe the counters. You would say you didn't complete finish or cleaning the kitchen you didn't do what i told you to do you only did part of what i told you to do right the command is clean the kitchen and you'd whether or not that's done is defined by the participles that you added on to that so here he's the command Typically is, ing words right uh, it, when in your english translation oh, it's, it's the ing doing this doing the other thing right so sometimes you need a little help from the greek so the command there the the imperative is make disciples or discipling going out and, and turning into disciples. The participles are going, or as you are going, you've probably heard it said, is probably true, uh, going, 
baptizing, teaching. Now, evangelism is heavily involved in the going and the baptizing, but it doesn't stop at evangelism. Going, baptizing, and then teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And so it brings it all the way around of you're not done when you get somebody in the water. This is not a command to go get people baptized. It's a command to turn people into followers of Jesus. And so, so many times, we were just talking about this before we got on, of how easy it is sometimes to get people baptized and then you never see them again or they fade out after a few weeks. The Great Commission is baptize them, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Well, what was the last thing Jesus commanded them? Make disciples. That's one of those commands. Well, guess what? Now you've got a cycle, right? You've got, you go, baptize, teach them, and, and this is what the early church did. They went, baptized, and teach or taught, my, my grammar's poor there, sorry. <laughs> they went, baptized, and taught, and those people that they baptized and taught also went and baptized and taught, and so on and so forth, to where 2,000 years later, here we are today, because they carried this out. But it well, And that's why the church exponentially grew in the book of Acts, right? right? That's why you see it go from, what was it, 120 to well, start, you know, after Jesus' ascension? Not only exponentially grew, but that it stuck. Or that, man, I'm having a hard stuck. time. That it, that <laughs> this took, this it guy. took, took that it okay. stuck. That, that, that they stayed. They didn't just baptize people, move on, and then come back, and the church had disappeared because nobody was there. They baptized people, and they stayed and said, this is what it means to follow Christ. Do this. Well, And, and this Jack is what I mean. grammar. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say, Joe, Sorry, real quick. Th this is what we I mean specifically when I say things like, we have overemphasized baptism. And again, people bristle at that. Oh, you're saying baptism is not important. No, of course I'm not saying that baptism is not important. What I am saying is we drill that into the ground so much and we hear so many lessons on baptism, this, baptism, that, baptism, 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 that we neglect this final act of the Great Commission, right? This this third participle of the Great Commission that it doesn't, your journey does not stop after baptism. It's the starting line, not the finish line. We've got so many Christians that view baptism as the pinnacle of, you know, that's that's what you have to get to, and then after that, you know, you're you're kind of you're kind of left to the wind as far as what you're supposed to do next. But it's because of this overemphasis on baptism that we neglect the, what the true idea of discipleship truly is. If we took this the way that we are today, if if they were the way we are today, they would have baptized three thousand at Pentecost, two hundred of them would have stayed faithful. Right, and they would have been like, but we baptized, we baptized three, three thousand, and we two hundred's better than nothing, right? And that's the way that we do it these days: is we baptize a ton, and what do you see at the end of Acts two, really in forty two through forty seven? You see a, a, the teaching aspect of the Great Commission. That's really you see what the you lifestyle, see. right? Yes, exactly, and they are committed to the the apostles' teaching, is what it says there, right? That they're devoting themselves to that. That's how this is done. That's the, the other part of the Great Commission because it would have been easy for Peter to go to Pentecost, to preach, to baptize 3,000 and be like, all right, guys, thanks. See you on Sunday. That's what we do and we lose so many of our converts because we don't recognize the last aspect of the Great Commission, which arguably is, is one of the most important because that's the turning them into, as, as C.S. Lewis says, little Christs. Okay, we've, we've talked about losing our converts, and that's a big deal, right? Because it's not just getting them baptized and then, well, they leave. But also, we get people baptized and they remain immature for years. I mean, you've got right. people who, you know, I've known guys that were Christians for 50 years and were like, I don't really want to lead a prayer over dinner. I'm just not comfortable with, like, What? They got left, in, and so the question, you know, we think if we, we go, we find somebody, we baptize, and we have done the Great Commission. No, we haven't. You haven't done that until you've brought them to maturity in Christ. That's the cycle. That's the completion. Again, to use the kitchen thing, if you did two out of the three things, you didn't do the job. 
And so if, if you baptize, if you went and found the person and baptized them, that is wonderful, but you got to complete the job. And, and so you end up with churches full of immature Christians, which ends up to consumer Christianity. If you're always dependent on the, the experts, the professionals to feed you, you can't go feed other people. As we talked about last week, you come to be served rather than to serve. The end goal of the Great Commission is to make you a servant is somebody that you can look around and go, this is what I bring to the table. This is what me as a, what I as a, man, my grammar is all over the place. What I as a joint supply to this body, that as we just read in Ephesians 4, it's that every person comes to maturity in Christ. That doesn't happen without disciple making. And so to clarify on this, Listening to sermons and coming to Bible classes is not making disciples. Putting people right. in a group to, to discuss Bible, that is helping them grow, but you can't do this short. And this is one of the reasons why we don't do it, because you can always do more numbers doing things the shortcut way. You know, uh, you think about there's kind of this revival of hand-stitched, handmade goods, Etsy, you know, these sites where people sell their, their crafts, their things that they made by hand, hand-stitched leather, that costs way more, but it's a specialty thing, because any machine, any manufacturing plant can just mass-produce all kinds of stuff. Mass-produce, the quality isn't as good. There's just not that unique touch. We can mass-produce, you know, baptisms at the, you know, the megachurch thing, the consumeristic Christianity thing, but the hand-making of disciples is a lot harder, but it's a lot more valuable. And I also think it's important to go back to, because we've, I want to come back to this teaching principle. That's the one that I think most gets neglected and why so many walk away. Um, and, and even as a quick aside, do you think about any company that hires, imagine their hiring process being like, all right, man, you're hired. Okay, so what's my job? Right, no training, I, no anything. I yeah. have, right, I've, I've seen from the outside, I have a basic understanding of what I'm supposed to do here on, on the shop line. Um, what am I supposed to do? Uh, well, I'll, I'll talk to you one day a week. We'll try to figure it out. I'll talk to you for an hour a week and see if you can figure it out. Nobody's going to be good at their job. But I want to go back to the going aspect as you were going because that's another part of this is this is intended to be, once again, a lifestyle. As you're going, that's that's already assuming you're going out and you're going to be speaking to Christ you're, or be speaking about Christ. You're going to be speaking to people. Put this into your day-to-day as you're going. As you're going to the bank, as you're going to your work, as you're going to, to the to store, eat, as, right. you're, as, you're, as you're going out to eat, as you're already doing these things, and, and then as you're obviously going specifically to evangelize, you're supposed to, to baptize them. And the teaching comes after. I think there's teaching before, and I think there's teaching after. Obviously, the baptism is, is the part that comes first. I know people that will not baptize until these people have taken, until the person has taken like a 12-week course, so they know everything. I don't see that in scripture. I see the twelve week course after, um, maybe, but I don't. I don't really see it before. I think, but it's the reason why we do that is we're scared to death of going out, evangelizing, baptizing them, and then falling away. And so we want to do all the teaching on the front end. I don't think that's very wise. But either way, the principle I'm getting at is this ought to be a lifestyle, and I am stepping on my toes big time here toward the evangelism. That is part of it. Is this baptizing? I don't think the church does a very good job of that either. We do a couple special campaigns, a couple door knocking campaigns, whatever it may be, and that's then we can claim that we went. We well, we we did go. Mm, this is more of but a lifestyle a function, as you're always going. This is a function of failing the teaching part, because the teaching is what creates mature disciples who can go and and it's 
again, it's the restaurant looking at the customers like, you guys aren't doing a good job of waiting tables and cleaning up. Like, that wasn't the deal. You told us to just come and, and take, come and, and receive. And so it's under the Great Commission. It's under the teaching part that you are training these people. And when you're training them, then they can go and do the things you need them to do. But you've got these these Christians who remain immature, who say, I don't, I don't know how to evangelize. I don't know how to talk about Jesus. I don't, because they're told to come and listen. Well, you've, you've got to put in the work to get them there. Let's just say we hammered the point last week about the paid staffers, right? Kind of the, with the restaurant analogy, how we, we expect the the paid staffers to kind of do all the work uh, in congregations. And so, you know, I've heard countless times from the pulpit, and, and a lot of other people have too, well, we all know that the Great Commission applies to everybody. Yes, we know that, but how many people actually believe that, right? They, they are still reducing the Great Commission down to, in their mind, whether they want to say it or not, well, that's the preacher's job, or that's... And that's for the elders. That's for the missionaries. Sure, I'll show up maybe for a door knocking campaign. I'll, I'll give money. That's another big one. I'll give money to this or that. But you know, Christians don't view the Great Commission as to them, right? They view it as that's that's for the that's for the spiritually elite. That's for the guys that get paid to do it. It's not for me. That's that's another big part of this issue. I read a book in in my prep for church reset where this guy did a statistical analysis of if you had one you know Christian, one preacher, whatever who baptized the person every single day, just every day, you know, had enough contacts, had enough Bible studies going that every day for years baptized people versus one guy who started off with two Christians, two men or whatever, and said, I'm going to study with you to a year to bring you to maturity. And then go, you know, he baptizes these two guys and says, we're going to study and I'm going to send you out to do it. And within 10 years, the exponential of, of if he can teach them to go and teach others, which this is Second Timothy 2, 2, which is a, another fulfillment of the Great Commission. And Paul says, what you receive from me, so that's Paul to Timothy, he says, entrust, entrust the faithful men so they can teach others also. That's four generations of teaching, right? That's uh, from one to the next to the next to the next. And so it's that exponential thing. Whereas if one producer baptizes a bunch of consumers and they're all dependent on him still, they're not going to go do those things. And so the point with this mathematical thing is one turns into three after that first year. Well, three turns into, you know, if they each take two guys, then and it goes and, it goes, you know, from there, within 10 years, you've outpaced the guy who's baptizing somebody every day. Well, I mean, if you offered that opportunity, man, if we could have somebody baptize people every single day, yeah, that sounds great. But when you really drill down into maturity and bringing people to where they need to be, we all can do more. The work can be shared as it was meant to be. Because as we talked about in the consumerism thing, as you said, the, the paid staffers, that's the preacher's job. Or I'm not good enough to do that. I can't do it. I can't help out with this. But we're all supposed to. It's what every joint supplies. The body doesn't have a lack of need in any of its members. And so when we get to this how side of it, well, we're talking about this making disciples, and we've, we've said that it doesn't happen from sermons because we've all known people who have listened to probably thousands of sermons and still might be immature as Christians, or have been in thousands of hours of Bible classes. And those are good, but one of the things I, I really talk about a lot in Reset is it's one size fits all. You and I, all every member in the church is at a different level in their spiritual walk. Some of them are very spiritually mature. Some of them are brand new, and you've got the, the whole spectrum in between, right? A sermon has to be to all of those people. A sermon can't address what you're going through in your life, the questions that you're having, the struggles that you're having, the things you don't understand. And so, number one, disciple-making has to be personal. 
It has to be sitting down across the table from them and saying, "What, what's going on? How can I help you understand God better? What are, what are things that you don't know that you need to know or would like to know?" And and finding those things out and helping that person out. It's again that Second Timothy two two cycle of look at somebody who is where you used to be and help them get to where you are now. You can't do that from the pulpit. You can't do that in in group settings. That has to be uh, on a very small level uh, of of personal connection there. I think this is why a lot of preachers get burnt out. And I was here probably six months ago. um, Just not even on... I I like preaching. It's a passion of mine. Uh, My congregation is great. A lot of good feedback. A lot of great brothers and sisters. Um, But I was getting burnt out because it's like, you know what? I could preach the greatest sermon of all time and everybody will forget by Tuesday. And my church actually is really good. They'll bring it up and such, Um, which has helped me get out of that. But how many preachers are burnt out because they realize I've got 30 minutes and really some some congregations want you at about the 22, 23 minute mark. But I've got max 30 minutes a week of this sermon to get as much in there as possible to try to teach these people, to, to give them something to hold on to for the rest of the week. I mean, are you kidding? Does anything else in life work that way? where you get 30 minutes to hold on to this, any relationship, any any training, you know, again, training for your job or you're training for, you're trying to learn piano and you do it 30 minutes a week. It's a joke. And somehow we've convinced people that this is, this is correct Christianity, is to show up and to listen to a 22, 23, 20, 25, 30-minute sermon. It's, it's garbage. Look how Jesus did it. If Jesus tried to train 12 men to take on his mission to the rest of the world over the course of three years by getting them for an hour every week, or even two or three hours if they came to Bible class or whatever, and all sat in a big group and he taught them, you know, hey, here's what the scriptures say about the kingdom, how did he teach them? Follow me. Let's walk and talk every single day. You're going to see what I do. You're going to learn how to do it as well. We're going to pray together. I'm going to answer your questions. I'm going to challenge you. I'm going to confront you. You know, there's no, you can't do confrontation in group settings like that. You, I mean, it, in fact, it'd be very bad from the pulpit to confront somebody and be like, hey, you're lagging behind. You are misunderstanding. You're doing wrong or whatever else. But in that group of, of small, you know, friends that Jesus brings along, he can tell Peter, get behind me, Satan. You know, he can have those conversations of, hey, your mind is on the world's concerns and not God's concerns. And so that personal touch has to be there or else the maturity just can't come about. So why do you think we don't, why do you think we're not personal in the church? Because we don't do the, hardly any of the one another commands, confessing sins to one another, encouraging one another daily, um, all the one another commands that you see really scattered throughout the New Testament. We struggle with all of those. You're really, so we, we lack... <laughs> you're trying to get to that uh, the, the next episode again, as last week we told you, we'll get to that, Joe. We'll get to that, Joe. Oh, that's, that's right. I, I forgot. <laughs> I forgot. I um, keep forgetting. It's it's Because I want to get into, and, and so I'll leave it for next week. I do want to get into, so that, that way we can tell our listeners, make sure to tune in next episode. Um, I'm going to be just as shocked as you guys to find out what happens, so... Because uh, clearly, I I don't understand it. Joe missed the planning meeting. Obviously, I very much I very much did. I'm like, which one? What goes with what? But discipleship is personal. We'll get into that more next week of what that looks like, how we make it more personal, and maybe why we're not as personal. But the second thing I'd say, unless Will, you got something to add to that? I was going to get into the the slow aspect of discipleship. Yes, kind of, kind Deci- of the next point. I was going to take yeah maybe intentional first, but these are the three is is personal, slow, and intentional. And I think intentional and slow really kind of go hand in hand. So we'll, we'll start with slow. Discipleship is slow. Jack, you already touched on this point of, man, it's so easy to just make everything as quick as possible. We want the quick answers right now. I was talking to a, um, a buddy at church yesterday about it. And um, 
there's a, I think it's in the Power of Habit, for those who have read it. I'm pretty sure it's in the Power of Habit. And he talks about archers and the Japanese archers versus the American archers and how the Japanese archers learn to love the process of, of being bad and getting good. So they'd miss, they'd, they'd either miss the target or they'd hit on the very outside, not even close to the bullseye. They wouldn't get down on themselves. They wouldn't get mad because they realize it's a process. I'm not supposed to be great right now. And they would slowly work their way in where they started hitting bullseye every time. The American would hit to the outside. He'd get down on himself. Oh, I just can't believe it. Then he'd have one that just hits bullseye and be like, oh, see, that's great. The American wanted instant results. The, the Japanese wanted slow progress all along the way because they enjoyed the journey to get there. And I think this speaks to our culture quite a bit of like, we want it now. Snap my fingers, fast food, um, you know, turn on Netflix with no commercials. I want it now. Not just the negative stuff, but the positive things. We want to, you know, we want to lose weight, but we want to lose it tomorrow, right? We we want to we want to be healthier, get fit. But we want to we want to have it tomorrow. I've, I've even seen it with young people. You know, they they want the best job, but they don't want to. You know, there, there's no concept of working their way up to it. It's this idea. Well, I, I just want it instantly. I just want this education. I just want this, and I just want that. And like you said, Joe, there's no process to it. And I think what, what you're about to get into with this whole discipleship thing is we tend to want to take the shortcut to everything. That's why I mean, what's 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 the quickest step for for the great commission typically it's baptizing that's why we overemphasize that one so much but you see if you go back to jesus once again how long was he with his apostles how long did he have his 12 following him just three years right that was not a quick instant okay here's what you need now go do it good to go in you know three months it was three years this is a a process that takes time and joe you're right americans don't americans are not patient right i'm preaching to myself here. I was going to say I'm not. Quick. We want things quickly. We want things instantly, instant gratification. But the, the call to discipleship is something that is going to take not just, you know, uh, it's personal, but it's not just intentionality, which we'll get into here in a second. But it is going to take time. It's going to take effort. The, the grind, you know, you hear that quite a bit. That's what it's going to take. It's going to take time. It's going to take effort. It's going to take the grind. We have to learn to love the process of becoming like Christ. Not just the end results. We can look at the Marshall Keebles or we can look at even the Alexander Campbells or, you know, the the great men of faith, the great men specifically for Church Christ, and we could say, wow, man, I'd love to be them. How do you think they got there? Day by day by day by day, being in prayer, study, talking to other people about Christ all the time. So we can hold these men up. We have to learn to enjoy the day-by-day process, which is slow. It's very slow, but I want to transition into because it's also intentional. Yeah, you're right. These these do go hand in hand because the the thing about the slowness, and one of my elders has been making this point lately, and I I think it's very well made. Because we have low expectations of people, because of you know the the time that we have or whatever, we've we've really gotten to the point where we try and do everything on Sunday. And so we've we've talked about before that we use Sunday for evangelism. Let's make it to where visitors like it. We're going to offer them invitation. We've got to preach the gospel to them in the invitation because this might be our only chance. Because we're, you know, like assuming we're not going to go talk to him otherwise. Um, you know, we've got to do our fellowship on Sundays. We're going to have, you know, our meals there. Or like we'll have a potluck every now and then and that'll call it good. And, and so let's just basically get it all rolled into one and then we can go about the rest of our lives. This is the as you are going principle is it's part of your life. It's not just something you can do on Sunday. And so it's slow and it's intentional of... As and it's not of, a box that you check off one time. Right. It's not, we did it this week. We, we've done church for this week, which is a way we can think of things. And so uh, on, on your point about being intentional here, 
it's using your life strategically towards this goal of making disciples, of being hospitable, having people in your house, taking people along with you on, you know, opportunities to just be together and, and finding opportunities for fellowship and for discussion and, and, you know, getting somebody to be a disciple and leading them along that way. And I, I use this illustration. I think this is one that, that helps understand it. You know, we, I've got the twin babies. You guys each have, have little ones as well. You don't have those kids and sit them down on the couch and say, all right, guys, the fridge is stocked with food. The pantry, you know, has got some stuff in there, some snacks or whatever. If you get hungry, go ahead and get it. They would die. We've talked about all these people that we baptize and then they fall away from the church. It's because they didn't have somebody go, we've got to bottle feed you. We've got to nurse you into, you know, strength of, uh, uh, of as a Christian to a little bit more maturity. And the New Testament talks about give them milk. They need that milk. But it also says they need to grow past the milk. The consumer Christianity version says you always stay on milk. We will bottle feed you every Sunday and Wednesday for the rest of your life. That's not good enough. What you do is you get them to where they're onto solids. You can teach them a little bit deeper things. You're on, moving them on to something just past the basics of salvation, uh, onto discipleship. And as you get them onto solids, you get them onto more nutritious stuff, you, you grow. Well, eventually, they can make their own food. You teach them to have their own spiritual walk. And then, as they grow, they get it to where they can make food for somebody else, right? They can feed somebody else. They can, you know, literally bring something to the table. And that gets to where we said last week that Christianity is a potluck, that everybody has something to bring to the table. But if everyone's a bunch of nursing babies that's dependent on the preacher and the teachers, you're not going to have that. And so you've got to expect a slow thing. You've got to expect that I'm going to nurse these people for a while, but I'm going to start handing it off to them to where they can get there. They can grow. They can start developing a, a, a nutritious spiritual life to where they can feed others. But this is what happens when you have churches full of people who have been in, in the pews for 50 years and they themselves don't know anything. They should be the discipling ones. They should be the ones that are taking these Christians aside saying, hey, I, imitate me as I'm like Christ, like Paul does. We are so afraid to do it because it's like, oh, I could never be that. It's like, well, Paul says that, and I know we're not the Apostle Paul, but somebody has to be imitating Christ and then let other people say, hey, this is what it looks like. And we all know a brother or sister in Christ who's like this, who's in their word daily. They're visiting, they're writing cards, they're encouraging, they're, they're doing so many things for Christ. We go, look at them. That's what we attain to. We know people like that. Unfortunately, they're few and far between because we have a bunch of, of churches littered with people that have been Christians for 30, 40, 50 years, and they know nothing, so they themselves are still in need of discipleship. We've talked about this before, though, that I I really hesitate to put that. I mean, people are responsible, and people should be stepping up doing more, but it it's the leaders. It's, you know, when Jesus came and, and called the, the shepherds, the blind guides, it's so much easier to turn everyone into consumers and say, I'll bring the lesson. I'll do everything. I'll handle this. We've got it. We, the professionals, you, the consumers. And so, as I've said, as we said last week, you can't keep treating people like customers and then get shocked when they act like customers. And so we've got to get out of this system that says your only job is to show up and listen. Because if that's their only job is to attend, put some money in the check or in the account and show up for events, again, attend mainly, maybe volunteer for VBS, maybe teach a quarter of a kid's class, but not like really engage in the lives of other people people because they're not being taught to do that well why would we expect them to start doing it and so i don't really hold it against the christians as much as much as the whole structure that we've created that's more convenient and, and glorifies man and, and the leadership we've got to start putting it back to them in that way basically it's what expectations are you setting right we've talked about this before with young people uh, in the sense that 
we don't really hold them to a very high standard. We expect very little of them. And so for the most part, what do young people do? They measure up to that very low standard and they don't go above and beyond, right? But why is that? It's because we're not expecting a lot of them. And yes, there is culpability on their part to some extent because, again, especially if they're a baptized Christian, but also to get to what Jack's talking about here, a lot of culpability falls on those who are setting the expectations, right? And those who are who are who are saying, you know, th- this is the only level that you have to get to. Once you get to there, you know, that's that's all we need from you. This applies to whether they're 16 or whether they're 46. What kind of expectations are church leaders setting? Uh, obviously, a lot of this falls on elders. What expectations are they setting for their congregation, their spiritual growth? If, if all the expectation is, hey, you be here on Sunday morning and we are going to count you as faithful, people are going to live up to that. Right, a lot of people. That's that's just going to be the, the the measure that they try to hit. Oh, Sunday morning, good to go. One hour out of 168, I can spend 60 minutes out of 168 hours in a week. Then I'm good because that's what my elders expect of me. Right, that's what the congregation expects of me. So, to Jack, I agree with your point. We got to change the expectations, and a lot of that falls more so on those who are again authority positions, elders, even ministers. That's who it falls on. A lot of the culpability that is. So. Uh, we're, we're kind of running up against our, our time here in, in just a bit. And so I want to, uh, one of the things, three levels of fellowship, I want to push that to next week for the family thing, because that's important and it goes hand in hand with this. And I think it, uh, this, this great commission, if we get it right, leads to a less consumeristic, more family-like church that we all want. But it starts with this great commission. It starts with a Jesus-like influence. It starts with the slow build. And and that's the result is you, the difference is, you treat people like consumers. You tell them that, hey, it's just about doing what you need to do to get to heaven. You get a bunch of box checkers. You treat people like, hey, it's your job here to be as much like Jesus, become conformed to the image of Jesus uh, as uh, throughout your life as far as you can. You're going to get people who live these things out by nature, that it's part of your nature to be a disciple. It's part of your nature to love others and do for others and to serve and to, to digest the scriptures and to pray and, and all of these things. It's not just things you do but it becomes who you are but i want to finish with something that i've come across lately i put it out on facebook it's very interesting to me there are two different ways of reading the great commission in christendom largely and i've only come across this in the last year that there is a difference and nobody talks about the difference two people read it totally different ways and apply it totally different ways and yet there's i I can't even find it debated anywhere as to which one it is one will read it as make disciples of all the nations. One will read it as disciple the nations. And so the one is a very individual concern. Basically go into every country, every people group around the world and baptize people in that area. Disciple the nations means transform the cultures of all these people groups. Teach these people groups to follow Jesus. That doesn't mean everybody in a people group is going to convert, but it means you're going to bring about cultural transformation through the Great Commission. Now, that's a lot bigger goal than just baptizing and teaching individuals in these cultures, although that would be part of it, right? It's not, you know, it's included in that, but it's a lot bigger than that. It has a more global scope. It has a, a just more cultural scope, again, than just beyond the individuals. Um, that's a really big difference. I mean, that, that is a huge difference as to what we're trying to do here. Now, the question is, which one is it? And when you break down the, the object and the verb and, and what's going on there, it says disciple the nations. It's, you know, teach teaching the nations to follow Jesus. And so 
we've had stuff on on politics. We've had stuff on culture and all that. Say, be that? careful! You're getting into Christian nationalism here. <laughs> be <laughs> careful. But see, that's I mean, literally you are. Is this idea that right. nations, people groups, uh, should be taught to follow Christ, and and that again, that doesn't mean that the government converts and forces everybody to be Christian, but it means that we're teaching them your laws should reflect this, and. When you think about it, you know, uh, there's a lot of Christians now who bristle against that, and that's like, that's a really bad thing. We're not to get involved in all that stuff. And you look at the last 2,000 years, like, well, we already did, and you're enjoying the blessings of it right now. The Aztecs aren't sacrificing children anymore because Christianization came to their culture. You know, of all the the rape and the degradation of women and children that happened all over the world, everywhere Christianity has gone has eradicated that. And exploitation of workers, you know, of, of, of like the lower people in society and, and things, just the awful things the governments have always done, the brutality and bloodlust of, of people groups all over, everywhere Christianity has gone has transformed that. And so when you think about the Great Commission, we're making disciples of these individuals with a goal towards transforming the culture. And so this starts small and gets really big, which is what Jesus said with the parable of the leaven and the mustard seed. And so let's not limit this to just baptizing people is, I guess, what I'm getting at. Don't limit it to an individual pursuit. Yes, individuals matter. This is how it's done. But our sights ought to be set much higher, I think is kind of the point you're getting at that we ought to be transforming the culture, and we are in a state of, of apostasy, I'd say, which is the church is being um, informed or, or is, I guess, being conformed to the culture instead of the other way around. And I'd say for a long time it was it was the church that was pushing out into the culture and really transforming and, uh, and cultivating more of the culture. Other way around at this point, which is why we say we're in a time of apostasy. We ought to be fundamentally changing the places we're in. And I think this starts on a local level. I think it starts on an individual level. I think it starts on a local level. And this is what you, what, um, you know, we had, had briefly talked about last week, Jack, in the intro um, of you moving is like you coming down here and we want to transform. Yes, we're in the Bible Belt. We recognize it. But we want to transform this into a place where, man, on a local level, and then we spread out from here, the culture is is shifting. The culture is changing. It is becoming a an exciting time. And this is what you see in the, the early church. This is what you see throughout the book of Acts, is people got excited about it because it was in Acts 17, they were, they were described as turning the world upside down. Right. That's right. I mean, that, that, that was the way that it was described. And I think the the overall point here, and Sarge, I'll give it back to you here in just a second, of, of what we're trying to get at with this episode and the the idea of discipleship and the idea of, hey, let's rethink here the Great Commission and the way that we're supposed to carry it out. We've talked about box checking before. Jesus Christ did not come to give us a, a, a checklist to check off, right? Boxes to check on Sunday morning. You make sure you have your five acts of worship. Check, check, check. Okay, you're good to go. You know, make sure you're there at, at 9 a.m. on Sunday morning, 7 a.m. or 7 p.m. on Wednesday night, and you're good to go. Check, check, check. That's not the life that Christians were supposed to call or were, were called to. Jesus did not come to give us a, a box to check off. He came to literally transform our nature, right? To make us, and, and that's what we're getting at over the cultures as well. If you have a group of people whose whose natures are transformed into following after Christ, what's that going to do to the culture? It's going to transform the culture. It's going to make it to where, you know, again, the world is getting turned upside down. Rather than a bunch of people living their own lives who are let's be honest, not really reaching the world right now, which is where a lot of congregations are at. You've got people who, because they are chasing after Christ with such intensity, they're turning their their, their perspective world upside down, which I think is what you're getting at there. Yeah, and this is Psalm 2, 
of of the nations on that end. This is Psalm two of hey every it is what should happen is every king should bow down, and that's really what we're hopefully headed toward is every king bowing down, and they will at judgment. Um, Revelation also gets to that, which we won't get into Revelation too much, lest we, we get into some real problems. <laughs> so, um, maybe well, for another episode. It's the idea that Christianity creates a culture of its own, and a, a, at first that's a counterculture, right? And that's what the church was with Rome, it was with Jerusalem, it was this counterculture of, boy, the Christians are living differently than all of us, and we don't like something that's different. But that counterculture becomes the culture. As, as it grows and, and, and is, is more converted, more brought into it. And what we're getting at with this, why I bring this up is, number one, it's the proper reading of the Great Commission. Number two, we can't do that as long as we've got this box-checking thing. As long as people think it's my job to show up, sit, on the, sit in the pews on Sunday, not be a bad person so I can go to heaven when I die, you can't can transform anything. We've got to think bigger because Jesus thought bigger. We mentioned that the Great Commission is tied to, number one, his authority over all things in heaven on earth. Number two, the preaching of the kingdom in Matthew. He plans on taking this whole thing over. You read in the prophets and Daniel of the churches, that, that stone that grows into a mountain that, that be, overcomes all of the kingdoms and all of those things. And, and all throughout the prophets, uh, he's got this world uh, conquest idea in mind of Christianity that the Great Commission launches. And we think it's about getting baptized and sitting in a pew and trying to be a good person. It's not. And so we've got to think bigger and we've got to think it's my job to be conformed into the kind of foot soldier for spreading this news all over the world and, and living my life in such a way that's going to create that counterculture that brings about this change that shows people the kingdom of heaven. We also have to recognize the time that we're in. And I think it's Aaron Wren that has the positive, neutral, negative Christianity. Um, negative world. We're, or negative world, yeah, rather. They're negative toward Christianity. That's where we're at right now. Being a solid Christian, stay-at-home wives, men who rule their household well, um, you know, children, and, and, and discipling our kids, which we didn't get into any of that, of discipling our kids. We're losing so many kids because parents have no idea how to disciple. The mom's out there working. The dad is, is coming home and sitting in front of the TV and never opens the Bible at home or barely has any conversations with their kids um, about Scripture. And so we're losing a lot of that. We didn't even get into the discipleship of children. But... Um, I think it's it's we're in a negative viewed world toward Christianity, so Christianity is going to become countercultural yet again. The same way that it started in the very beginning, Jack, as you pointed out in Rome, it's countercultural. We have a lot of Christians who are convinced we're still living in a positive Christian world. Oh, everybody! That if we just be nice to people, that they're going to come over to our side, right? Well, hey, they'll turn back. It's like no, we're headed into a time where true Christianity, truly following the Scriptures. You know, all the things that we've been talking about, the modesty and everything else, like all of those things are pursuing holiness. That is going to radically change what everybody else does. That's going to look way different. That's what we have to get used to. We have to embrace the fact that we are getting back to a time where Christianity is once again countercultural. We can once again take over the culture, but we're in a different culture than we were 50, 60 years ago. People have to realize that because it will change the way we do life. It will change on an individual level. You may have gotten away with it back in the 50s and 60s when everybody seemed to, to love Christianity. You can't get away with the box-checking Christianity now. And I would say you didn't really get away with it then. That's what led to this. But you had a lot of people that could do that, and it didn't affect the culture that much because everybody else was Christian. It will absolutely affect the culture now. We have to get away from that and recognize Christianity at its core and when we're pursuing holiness is now countercultural, and people will hate it. That's okay. That's what it was in the beginning. 
We're going back to it, and they change the world. So don't think, Christians, for those who are kind of white pill, black pill, I can be a black pill from time to time in, in terms of, you know, very negative toward the future. But there's a very positive aspect. First off, we know Christ wins, but there's a very positive aspect of we're going back into a time where we can really start engaging the culture and not let it be some cheesy form of Christianity that's based around heaven and, and Bible knowledge. It's based around Christ. We get the opportunity to come back and to take it over for Christ again. That's exciting. We ought to be excited. We get to fulfill the Great Commission in a way we haven't for decades. So for the listener, get excited with us. We really want to transform our cultures. We want you to transform your local communities, your your families, and, and all the way up. It starts with the individual, marriages, families, uh, churches, local communities, states, and then the country, then the world. We're doing it. We're going to do it. We just have to start living this out on a day-by-day basis. So the the thing that everyone loves most about talking about transforming the church is the family na- nature of it, the one another's community. Everyone likes that. We can't get there without the Great Commission. You need the Great Commission. You need that maturity. You need everyone you know, pulling their own weight to build that. But that's what we're going to talk about next week. Joe's been trying to rush to that episode for two weeks now. We're going to get it's there gonna next week. It's going to be so good. And the one after that is going to be really good as well. We've got a couple of, of good episodes left in this series. And so... But again, it can't happen without the Great Commission. Uh, it, it can't happen without Christ-likeness being the goal for every Christian. And so uh, we, we hope we've made that point well in this one. Do you guys have any final things to add? Any thoughts? All right, I think we pretty well exhausted what we wanted to say on this one. And we'll be back next week. Uh, I want to remind everyone, through this whole series, Church Reset is on sale at focuspress.org. Uh, if, if this is kind of kindled your interest in the book uh the book is available uh on there pick up a copy pick up 30 copies you know 50 copies however many (laughs) send one to joe because again he does not have one on his shelf and uh we will talk to you guys next week 